Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It's the 22nd of March, 2022. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, even if you're not listening to it in the morning. Good morning. Good day. Good afternoon. Good evening, depending on uh, how you're listening and when you're listening. Uh, Greetings to each and all. Um, What is going on in the Sonoran Desert outside of Tucson, Arizona? That is what I got to wondering. Um, Asked another way, what are people smoking? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the New York Times has reported, this is from a couple of days ago. You know, I read widely, so you um, don't have to. That's part of my role and responsibility in our relationship. So um, I'm going to offer you some things today from both the New York Times and Rolling Stone in relationship to what people are smoking. Not just in the Sonoran Desert outside of Tucson, Arizona, but that is apparently where the toads live, um, who are secreting a venom that people are then smoking. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, that is what they're smoking. So here's the lead in the New York Times piece from a couple of days ago on toad venom. After multiple combat tours as a Navy SEAL, Marcus Capone tried talk therapy, brain injury clinics, prescription drugs, but nothing worked to ease his crippling depression and anxiety. Then he smoked the secretions of the Sonoran Desert toad. Quote, I saw why they call this, quote, the God molecule. After I got a full central nervous System reset, says Mr. Capone, 45, who now runs a nonprofit with his wife, helping hundreds of others access the toad medicine. So uh, the way the the New York Times frames this is as part of the, quote, wave of greater mainstream acceptance of psychedelics for treating everything from mental disorders and addiction uh, to chronic pain and touting the potential of the toad secretion. Uh, People are paying anywhere from $250 for one ceremony in East Texas to $8,500 for uh, a beachfront setting in Mexico where they can consume this toxin. Um, Now, the New York Times piece actually raises uh, an alarm and concern about the unintended consequences of this, warning that um, this desire to get all this toad venom involves poaching, harvesting, trafficking uh, of the toad, which they are concerned will trigger the collapse of the population of the Sonoran Desert toad. So there is um, that angle to this story as well. And so while the concern in this particular piece is for the toad population and toads in general, from a worldview perspective as Christians, um, there's a whole lot to talk about here and to consider. And that might uh, be the very reality that people are living with very persistent and even chronic pain. Um, The pain related to here in this article is not um, physical pain, but depression and anxiety, Um, pain of, uh, you know, that is essentially in the mind. And 
I think that as Christians, it's important to have the, the kinds of conversations about the links that people will go to escape or mask the pain that we experience because we live in a fallen world. And so I don't want to make light of the pain that people are experiencing, but I do want us to consider the links to which we would go to mask or alleviate um, or live in some state outside of reality in order that the pain would be alleviated or masked, which takes me to the Rolling Stone piece, um, which was actually published last April. So nearly a year ago, um, Rolling Stone featured a very long piece about how psychedelics are used um, across a range of religious expressions and the growing use of psychedelic drugs in in the context of, um, quote unquote, worship of groups that consider themselves somehow loosely affiliated with either Judaism, Islam or Christianity. And so, yes, you heard me right. Uh, in this Rolling Stone piece, there is information about uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act appeals to the First Amendment to protect the use of all kinds of drugs in the context of, quote, religious expression. And so this is a conversation we should be having. Um, what does it mean to incorporate the use of psychedelic drugs in what Rolling Stone describes as contemporary Abrahamic religious practices? That would include um, what they call the expression of psychedelic spirituality. We're talking here about the use of LSD, mushrooms, and other um, psychedelic drugs during, quote-unquote, holiday ceremonies and rituals um, as a means to uh, a more meaningful practice of the religion. Here's what's going on here in, in, the, um, in the phrasing of one underground plant medicine guide who says, um, this is very helpful to people. They feel the medicine is incredibly healing. It helps us shed our ancestral baggage and get over the humps to connect with the Creator. Um, the use of the word medicine is troubling. The use of drugs to access God or to imagine that you're accessing God is troubling. And so let me just encourage you to give this some thought and some consideration today. If getting high, if literally getting out of your mind is the only way you can connect with the creator who made you to be in your right mind and even a righteous mind, then are you sure you're connecting with the Creator at all? I think that's the question I would be asking to a person using uh, psychedelic and psychotropic drugs in uh, religious expression. All right, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is going to join us next. Yesterday, the Supreme Court declined to hear a case that has bearing on not only a particular gospel rescue mission in Seattle, but in uh, you know, from my view, it has um, bearing on. Religious schools and religious um, nonprofits who want to hire people whose life and lifestyle um, aligns with their system of beliefs. We're going to talk with Dr. Mark Kayla Smith about that next. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith joins us now. Uh, I feel confident he is using the access gained through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to commune with God. Uh, he is not relying on the death of a toad whose venom will then be smoked. 
Yeah, I don't think Cedarville would look kindly on me using a toad to commune with God. I'll just say that. Smoked smoked yeah. toads. Yeah. Um, hey, good morning, and thank you for being with us. Uh, the Supreme Court declined to hear a case yesterday in regard to the Seattle Union Gospel Mission, but it has um, potential implications for others. Can you tell us what didn't, what isn't happening? What happened and what isn't happening? <laughs> what happened and what isn't happening? Yes, I got it. So, uh, a group in Seattle, the Union Gospel Mission, um, it serves homeless people, people who are in uh, crisis situations, and they had a, a need for legal counsel in 2016, and a volunteer at their organization named Matthew Woods, who'd been there, been volunteering for about three years, um, wanted to apply for the position, and he was told that his application would be, would not be considered uh, because the organization has standards against homosexual activity. Um, well, Woods, who's a homosexual, who's in a same-sex relationship, um, a, filed a lawsuit arguing that he was being discriminated against based on his sexual orientation. Um, and th- those standards are pretty high in Washington, uh, the state of Washington. And so um, there are clear grounds for him to file that suit. The initial court uh, determined that uh, the Union Gospel Mission was exempt from this because it was a religious organization. So on free exercise grounds, they'd be exempt from these kind of requirements. Uh, The Washington Supreme Court overturned that, and the United States Supreme Court has declined to intervene for now, which means basically the trial's gonna move forward, um, and eventually the Supreme Court might take it up, uh, but right now they're gonna let the process play out. So I'm just curious, what, what what relief exists for a person like this? They're not going to then hire him. So is the relief that they have to pay him something? Yeah, it could be that they would pay him something for sure. But in a case like this, it's more, it's almost always more about setting a legal precedent in place Mm. than it is about uh, winning compensation. Because as you, as you know, the union gospel mission is not going to have deep coffers to pull millions of dollars out of. And so this isn't really a financial effort. And I'm sure he's getting, I'm sure Mr. Woods is getting strong legal support so that it really doesn't have any cost to him. Now it's just the possibility to create a new precedent. But it'll be an interesting case. I mean, the court has been pretty deferential uh, toward what we call the ministerial exemption, uh, which basically allows religious organizations to hire and fire as they see fit, um, just because they need to control their own messaging, control their own doctrine, control their own beliefs. and But arguing that a legal counsel is ministerial is a little bit of a stretch. And arguing the Union Gospel Mission is a church may be a little bit of a stretch, too. And so uh, it would create an interesting case for the court. I think the other um, conversation that I have heard raised uh, just among, just casually, is, you know, if someone's um, qualifications are good good enough for us in terms of volunteer service. Um, then you know why why is there a barrier to employment? Right. Um, does you know and so and then I, so I think there's a conversation about volunteer standards, employee standards, leadership standards that grows out of this as well. So it's a good conversation for each of us and all of us to be uh, considering. Um, okay, the truth is oh we got to take a very very brief break. When we come back, we're going to ask Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. Is truth having a moment? Is truth making a comeback? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places. All right, joining us now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, This afternoon, um, 3-22-22, he is going to be live on Cedarville's Facebook, YouTube, and website 
offering a historical perspective and faith response beyond Roe v. Wade. So it's called Beyond Roe v. Wade, a historical perspective and faith response. You can find it um, at Cedarville's homepage um, this afternoon, also on their Facebook and YouTube channels as well. Um, So, Mark, let's talk about truth and whether or not truth is having a moment. Is it making a comeback? Uh, Let's hope so. Right. I mean, certainly our culture has not been very hospitable to the idea of truth, uh, arguably for quite some time. Um, You and I both read recent uh, article editorial by Jonah Goldberg, uh, where Goldberg talks about the reemergence of truth potentially during times of crisis. And I think it's a very um, interesting perspective. You know, when something like what we're seeing unfold in Ukraine happens, we need to label it. We need to categorize it. We need to think through it. We need to process it. And all of a sudden, words like terrorism or violence or oppression um, become meaningful. And we see the truth of those words through the actions of what's taking place uh, in Ukraine. And it just sort of puts in perspective how even we've used those words in America, oppression, and violence to relate to things like giving a speech on a college campus or hearing points of view that I don't like um, as oppressive and violent. And it it creates a little bit of a shakeup, I think, and it it forces you to reflect on what's true, what's not true, what we really believe, what we don't believe, and when we're just changing language to to win an argument. which is really, I think, a lot of what we see today. You know, let's just change the words and what they mean, and maybe that will help me win an argument that otherwise I really have a hard time winning. Yeah, I, th- I think that these are good conversations for all of us to have, and when a word is used in a way that does not align with reality, I think that we as realists and as Christians should say— um, so I just need to pause there because that is not what that word means to me. I, I do not understand that word in the same way you are um, representing it. And so I want to pause the, here in the conversation and I want to talk about this word and what it means. Um, I think that's a way of regaining some ground in terms of reality-based conversations, uh, particularly in the culture today. So I think that's just really, really good. Talk with us about what, if anything, you know about the Swing Voter Project. It's, it's a really interesting project. Um, basically, a focus group of people is convened periodically. And for those in the business, a focus group, small group of people that you ask questions to, maybe you show them material like speeches uh, or commercials, and then a moderator can sort of interact with them and ask them what they feel about and what they think about uh, the material that they've just seen. Well, the, the Swing Voter Project is a, an ongoing group of people Uh, who voted for President Trump in 2016 and then voted for Joe Biden in 2020. And so they are swing voters, as we would call them, uh, who've gone back and forth a little bit. And the goal is to try to just get a feel for where they're coming from and how they're seeing reality as it unfolds, Um, maybe as an indicator as to how the next elections might play out. Uh, You know, these kinds of voters are important for politicians, and they can make a difference, certainly in close cases. Um, But I think what it's showing is, uh, so far, uh, the Ukraine crisis and um, President Biden's response to it has been viewed better, at least from these folks, uh, certainly than how President Trump has viewed the crisis and some of the language that he's used. And so 
it's an interesting interesting indicator, I think, about what maybe the next couple of years could hold for us as we think about even a rematch in 2024 between those two candidates. Is it wrong of me to not want a rematch between those two candidates? <laughs> I mean, you know, just at a heart level, is it wrong yeah. for me to just kind of wish there were two other candidates because I've sort of seen this movie and I, I didn't really, you know, I don't really want to see the sequel. I mean, is that just wrong? No, I, I don't think you're alone. I really don't. And I think, you know, it's the old saying in a country of 330 million people, you think we can maybe do better than that for the, for those two candidates. And I think both, both of the candidates are flawed in their own way and they both present real serious challenges but I think right now, if they both run for re-election, they'll both be favorites to win their nominations. Um, but yeah, I, I think we could probably do better. But it looks like this is the direction we're headed. Um, okay, so um, progressives have given President Biden a list of, of executive order demands um, that they like. I, so first of all, like, do pe- is, is that normal? Do people just like give their list of demands to the president and say, do these things? Um, and then what's on the list of things progressives want? So it's it's it, it is normal for for these progressives. I'll just say that. I mean, they've taken a very aggressive approach to President Biden and they're frustrated. Uh, you know, this is the pre- progressive caucus from the U.S. House. Um, they're frustrated that things haven't been moving more quickly. You know, they're frustrated that Build Back Better has stalled in Washington, D.C., for example, and isn't going anywhere. And, and I think they're frustrated with President Biden that he's not necessarily pushing a strong, from their perspective, progressive agenda. Um, but they're asking him to issue executive orders on things like health care costs, uh, student loan debt, uh, immigration rights, climate change, um, tax fairness and uh, they want him to use his power to try to deal with some of these issues through the stroke of a pen, um, which I, I have to say is typical in some ways for the progressive approach to things. You know, if you can't get the system to work, then change the system. I think that's sort of their approach to this. But I think this is wildly unpopular um, and is actually uh, would damage President Biden if he did some of these things through executive order. So my guess is this isn't going to go very far, uh, but it is interesting to watch it sort of start to play out. So if you can't get the system to work legislatively, work the that's system right. through the executive branch. That's right. And, uh, you know, as uncomfortable as that is, that's what the direction that we see things going. Um, and even during the Trump presidency, we saw Republicans try to push this to a degree as well. Uh, you know, for example, if you can't get Congress to pass legislation on climate change, then you get the president to invoke the uh, create a national climate emergency through his emergency powers start to force the federal government to create more solar panels and more windmills and things like that and try to address the problem that way. I think there'd be a horrible abuse of executive power uh, if it were to go that direction. All right. I think that in a minute you can tell us how the Senate passed the permanent daylight savings time bill and what prospects <laughs> it has in the House. Because it, uh, it, it, light matters, time matters, right. and radio right. signal strength matters. Yeah, basically, Marco Rubio and Patty Murray used the Senate's rules to put this thing in front of the Senate in an unexpected moment. And it didn't go through committee. It didn't go through the normal debate process. uh, But it was hotline is the language that they use. And this is raised in a very general meeting. And they say, "Okay, does anyone have any objections? Well, no one had objections. And it passed unanimously. And so it kind of flew under the radar 
And there are some senators who are a little bit upset about it because they felt like they weren't properly consulted. But in reality, uh, Rubio and Murray worked the process perfectly. It's just they weren't paying uh, everyone else wasn't paying close enough attention to really get it to stop. And so uh, it made it through the Senate, which I was shocked about, frankly, because we've been talking about this for years. Uh, and now the House may take it up. But who knows how long that'll ha- that'll take to happen. <laughs> Okay, so um, I I do think it's a good like civics lesson. The whole thing makes a good lesson in how the Senate rules work and how to work the rules of the Senate to get a piece of legislation um, on the floor in such a way uh, that it's passed by unanimous consent when people are out of the room who would otherwise object. So uh, so there you go. Mm -hmm. There you go. Be be in the meetings. Be in the meetings and be in your seat and pay attention to what's on the agenda for the day. That might be the lesson to all senators um, in relationship to daylight savings time. Uh, Mark Caleb Smith is going to be live this afternoon. It's a live stream event beyond Roe v. Wade, a historical perspective and faith response. It's going to be broadcast on Cedarville's website, Facebook and YouTube channels. Um, As always, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks to all your listeners, too. We'll be right back. Well, I know that you are praying with me for the people of Ukraine, particularly today. Let's bring into focus the people of Mariupol. Um, it is under uh, just incredible assault, um, having uh, having refused to surrender to Russia yesterday morning. Um, the assault of Mariupol has been intense and ongoing. Um, it appears as if uh, the Russians just intend to flatten it completely. Um, and so let's be praying. There are hundreds of thousands of people still inside that city. Um, and so how how they are surviving is a growing mystery as there are now no um, journalists inside of Mariupol. If you want to read a really... Um, troubling but heroic account of coverage. The Associated Press has posted the stories of the last journalist to leave Mariupol, um, and the stories they tell are are harrowing. Um, so let's be praying, renewing our prayers today for uh, for those people. We're going to talk with uh, Pastor and, um, and author Jim Dennison next from the Dennison Forum. We're going to talk about Ukraine. We're going to talk about the church and the Ukrainian refugee crisis. And we're going to talk about the story that President Zelensky is telling and how that can help us not only understand what's happening in Ukraine, but understand ourselves as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Dr. Jim Dennison joins us uh, on a regular basis. You can find him at dennisonforum.org. I rely on his daily articles um, and appreciate his ministry. Um, Jim, welcome back. And let's start with Ukraine. Maybe just um, how you're feeling about what's happening there and and how we as Christians ought to be reflecting on uh, this unfolding drama. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Carmen. So glad to be on with you again. So it's always a privilege to be able to do this with you. So I've been praying a lot about that, actually, in recent days. Lord, what's your heart for this? We had a missionary years ago in one of the churches I was pastoring who came in to speak on that Sunday night, and he and I prayed together before the service, and he prayed, Lord, break my heart for what breaks your heart. I've never forgotten that prayer. So I've been asking God, of all the horrors that we're seeing right now, what is it in this that especially most breaks your heart that you would want us to be broken for as well? And the answer I keep getting back is the innocent suffering, the absolute innocent suffering, the bombing of maternity wards, the bombing of children's shelters, the bombing of theaters where people are hiding by the hundreds, if not the thousands. We're seeing right against wrong in a level of stark black and white that we seldom see in our culture. Makes it really tough for postmodern relativists to say there's no such thing as truth. They're just your truth and my truth. When we're seeing such horrors played out before us. And I'm just convinced God's heart is breaking for every child, for every family, for every person who's being so victimized by this illegal and immoral invasion. It puts in stark relief the need for the gospel and the need for the truth of Jesus. You know, I think when we, um, when we look at what's happen- happening, um, particularly in the cities like Mariupol, um, when we recognize that tornadoes have ripped through Texas, uh, when we yeah pivot to China and say there are no survivors found in a, in a plane crash there. Like the world seems very, very robust and full of bad news. Um, let's talk about the proclamation of the good news in the midst of all the bad news. That's the opportunity, isn't it? And that's really where I've really in recent days been really focusing my heart and mind is we need to reframe these obstacles as opportunities. The darker the room, the more powerful the light the more visible the light, the more attractive the light. I often tell the story of being in Carlsbad Caverns years ago, and they got us down to the bottom of the caverns. They had us all sit down. Then the tour guide turned off his flashlight. Pitch black. Couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Turned the flashlight back on, and you were instinctively drawn to the light, and the light defeated the dark. So if we, as the light of the world, will see the darkness of the tragedies that are around us today as an opportunity to speak the truth in love, as an opportunity to reflect the light of Jesus, then that light defeats the dark, and God redeems these crises by drawing people closer to himself. I've learned over the years, Carmen, that self-sufficiency is spiritual suicide. Well, when we get into crises like these, we understand that we need God on a level perhaps we didn't realize we did before. And it's in those times of desperation that people are open to the gospel, open to the good news, open to the light. If I'll reflect that light in my light today. Mm, So helpful. Talking with Dr. Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum, you can find him at denisonforum.org. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the refugee crisis. You've been reflecting a lot in your daily articles on how Christians are serving and um, what people are doing, just opening their own doors. Maybe reflect a little bit on, um, on the refugee portion of this conversation. You bet. And I'm so grateful to be able to tell this good news, this wonderful story. So, yeah, I wrote the other day about a church in Poland, happens to be a Baptist church, happened to be a Baptist minister, or maybe drew me especially to this. But it's become an absolute gateway to safety and security for hundreds of Ukrainians fleeing their homeland into their area. They're setting up shelters for them. They're putting up children's areas with educational videos. They're putting out drinks and showers and places to sleep. The president of the Baptist Union of Poland said, what we're seeing is a movement of love and generosity across this nation. Poles are opening their doors and arms to Ukrainians. They are taking them into their churches. They're taking them into their homes. They are feeding them. They are caring for them. Then I love this. This is what Jesus calls his believers to do all the time. Polish Christians are taking the teachings of Jesus seriously and living them out each day during this situation. What a model 
for the rest of us. I'm, um, I'm, I am I want to talk uh, about more headlines out of um, out of Ukraine, but I would love for you, since we're you know on the subject of pastors and congregations, I, um, I was noting today that you shared the story of Wade Berry and the Second Baptist Church of Ranger, Texas, and I just thought that um, some of the content of that was so rich and such a blessing. Would you tell us about Wade Berry? He's a pastor of a church in Ranger, Texas, Second Baptist Church in Ranger. Ranger is about 120 miles east, or excuse me, west of me here in the Dallas area. I drove through there yesterday. I was driving back from Midland when I was speaking in Midland on uh, Sunday and Monday. We saw the smoke from the fires out in Eastland and all of that. We actually have a family member out in Eastland that lost everything. They barely got out with their lives. All they had was their wedding rings when they got out. Well, in Ranger, Texas, which was part of these fires that everybody's been hearing about, west of Dallas, there's this pastor, Wade Berry, Second Baptist Church, last Sunday held a worship service in front of their 103-year-old building, which was destroyed by fire. In his sermon, he talked about residents who'd lost everything. He thanked firefighters from 13 state agencies, 48 local fire departments. He spoke especially of one deputy, uh, Sergeant Barbara Finley, who was killed going door to door trying to help people escape. And he made this statement, we're always more than the tragedies we face. There is beauty in ashes, hope in despair, and hope is evident even in mourning. Well, he could have preached that sermon three weeks ago, and it would have been just as true theologically. He would have believed that to be just as true biblically. But as he's standing in front of a 103-year-old building destroyed by fire and speaking that word of hope and grace, it has a power that's been captured in all the local media down here in Texas. His sermon is being replayed and rebroadcasted. People are seeing this because they're seeing his hope in despair on a level that attracts them to the hope that they need, the gospel of Jesus that they need in their hearts. Okay, let me just confess that, um, you know, I I pay attention to a lot of things going on, um, and I didn't know that Texas was on fire. So that mm. tells you, Jim, I mean, I, um, I'm sorry that I didn't know, and I now know, and I've now, you know, turned my attention to it. Um, so for those of you listening, since uh, a lot of you get your news from me, and I didn't know this, I haven't been reporting on um, fires, wildfires across parts of Texas. There is now a disaster declaration for 11 counties um, Mm -hmm. across the state of Texas. And um, a lot of not only property, but, you know, folks have um, folks have lost lives. I mean, this has been um, this is awful. And so, Jim, you know, I just confess, like, right, we can only we do only pay attention to so many things. It's it's hard to keep up. It really is. It's hard for me to keep up as well, Carmen. In fact, quite often, as you and I have these conversations, you'll suggest stories we might talk about, and you'll suggest stories I've not seen either. As we're having these discussions together, it's so hard to keep up with everything that's happening. And we have our own filter by which we look at things through the prism of what really seems most relevant to us. This is obviously relevant to me because I drove through the smoke yesterday because I have a family member that lost their home out there. I wouldn't be as aware of things where you are as you might be of things where I am. The good news is that God knows all of that, that God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. He grieves with each of us as if we were the only one that was grieving. Years ago, 1979, after my father died of a heart attack, my senior year in college, I made my way back to school a couple weeks later. A friend of mine named Linda Sharp, whose father had himself died of cancer, and then her pregnant older sister was killed by a drunk driver just a few months earlier. Linda came up to me, 
put her arms around me. She said, time helps. That was in 1979. I've never forgotten it. Well, very few people would know or care about my family story. Not that many people would know Linda's, but God did. And I'm convinced that God inspired Linda to see me across the quadrangle at our university, to come across, to put her arms around me and say those words to me that now 43 years later are just as real as when she spoke them. I think we can sense God's presence like that. Jesus said, you're in my hand. Nothing can take you out of my hand. So God sees the news we don't see, feels the hurts others don't feel, and grieves with us every minute of every day. This past Sunday, our pastor said something um, that just, you know how there's just times where, you know, it's not as if it's actually the first time you've heard it, but it's the first time you've heard it, heard it, like the first time that maybe you had ears to like really hear it. And um, it was it was from John chapter 10. And this wasn't even the emphasis of what he was talking about. But this um, this promise of God keeping me right, that God is going to keep me, that I'm going to be kept is just this such this amazing, great assurance. And um, and it gave me ears to hear something else later in the day. Um, Jim, my husband, and then Matthew, our 16-year-old, who has some special needs. And so there's still mm. a lot of, like, roughhousing play that takes place because that's still me- really meaningful to him. And so in the midst of all of that, Jim said, what am I going to do with you? And Matthew said, keep me. Oh. And I thought to myself, yeah. that's it. That's it. That's just right there, like right in the midst of whatever's going on and the struggles and the difficulties and you know, what I want to know is that God keeps me, that I'm kept as a child, beloved, and, you know, and no matter what, even when God probably is a little bit exasperated and is like, what am I going to do with you? <laughs> just keep me. I just, um, yeah, love that. That's my heart. That's all of our heart. And it's so countercultural, isn't it? Because we live in a world in which, I mean, every minute of every day, we're told you are what you do. You're told you are how you look or how popular you are, what people think of you. A counselor once said to me, I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I'm who I think you think I am. (laughs) Well, the good news is that the opposite of that is true with God. We're not keeping God. He's keeping us. We're not holding on to him. He's holding on to us. I love that Jesus said, you're in my hand. If I've got something in my hand right now, nothing can get to it without getting through me. Anything that Mm. it feels, I feel. And that's the good news of this incredible promise in John chapter 10. For anyone listening to us right now, you may not feel like you can hang on to God. You may not feel like God is near, but he is. And if Christ is your Lord, you are in his hand. And nothing, Jesus said, nothing can take you out of his hand. You are kept today. I love that. Um, we're going to continue our conversation with Jim Dennison in just a moment. We're going we're gonna to pivot back to Ukraine, and we're going to talk specifically about what President Zelensky, the story that he's telling, the narrative that he is, um, that he is communicating to the world. And then we're going to talk about the stories we tell ourselves. You can find articles related to all of these subjects at denisonforum.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. What breaks your heart? What makes you cry? What would I see if I look through your eyes? Continuing our conversation with Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. We've been talking about praying that God would break our hearts for what breaks his, and certainly we are all heartbroken over what is happening in Ukraine. 
President um, Volodymyr Zelensky has been telling the story in a very provocative way around the globe or to those around the globe, and he's been doing so um, in a way that's particularly compelling. So, Jim, what is the story that Zelensky is telling? This is phenomenal to watch. It truly is, especially when you know his backstory, that he came into this in such an unusual way, coming through television medium as a popular comic before he was elected president and kind of an anti-corruption move and all those sorts of things. No one really saw him as the Winston Churchill of the day. But what he's saying, he said this to the Germans in their context. He said this to the U.S. Congress in our context and cited 9-11 and cited the Pearl Harbor in our world. What he's saying is this is the new Cold War. This is the new Berlin Wall as it is. This is the new 9-11. We're fighting here what you're fighting as well. If you won't join us here, you will find it there. This is a battle against light and dark. This is a battle against good and evil. We are standing up for the values that you believe in, and we're calling you to do this as well. In fact, his specific quote was, we are fighting for the values of Europe and the world. And he's appealing to the world to join them in fighting for the values that we all embrace. It's not only a brilliant move politically and psychologically, but it's true. What they are fighting for are the same values, the same belief we have in this country, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by the Creator with inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's the opposite of Putin's meta-narrative, trying to build the Russian empire and enslaving if necessary, destroying if necessary any nations that impede that growth of kind of a czarist sort of autocratic empire. It's the opposite of that. It's the Western values that we embrace, and that's what he's calling us to defend together. You used the term meta-narrative. What is a meta-narrative and what might be examples of competing meta-narratives today? Yeah, thank you. I think it's a very important geopolitical analytical tool. I learned this from George Friedman in his book, The Next Hundred Years and The Next Ten Years. He points out that every nation has a north on the compass. It has a cultural DNA. He calls it a meta-narrative. I think it's trying to be. And if you understand that, you can better understand the past and predict the future. Vladimir Putin's meta-narrative is to rebuild Mother Russia, to rebuild the Russian Empire. Sees himself as another Peter the Great, who back in the 17th century really created the empire of Russia as it was. And he's, at this point, doing everything he can to expand that empire, to build the western edge of that, to create this empire that he believes Russia is supposed to be. Iran, by contrast, is trying to rebuild the Persian Empire empire, with the Shiite crescent all the way through Syria into Lebanon, and trying to rebuild what was at that time the greatest empire in the world. You could say the Turkeys trying to rebuild the Ottoman Empire. You see these various kind of meta-narratives at play, and at this point, it's the contrast, or the collision, you could say, between an empire narrative and a freedom narrative that we in the West embrace, that all men are created equal. Vladimir Putin doesn't believe that. He sees himself as a modern-day czar. He genuinely believes his people are better off under an autocratic dictatorial rule. The communist Chinese believe not our Western narrative, but their narrative, that you are better off under communist party rule than if you had freedom to rule yourself. Competing, colliding meta-narratives explain most of the conflicts we're seeing in the world today. Jim, um, Selah, Mary, and Carol have all just texted in to just say how much they genuinely appreciate um, your Mm. knowledge and your humility. And so Mm. I thought um, sometimes it's just good to pass that along. That's very gracious. Um, uh, Carol says, you guys literally light each other up. 
There you go. <laughs> I am happy to be one part of that. Club. That's really, really, right? No, it's I'll so good. Thank you. Very so, gracious. Guys. Yeah. So on the to- on the topic of meta narrative. So you know when I think about the way people um, see themselves and their life story and the way they're writing the next chapter, I'm not sure that a lot of people see themselves as a part of what God is doing over the full scope of of history. I mean, I I try to find my place in the gospel narrative and recognize that, um, you know, of all the times that I might have lived, this is the time and the place that God uh, ordained that I should live. Um, I am blessed to have access to the resources over which God has set me as a steward, and I consider um, the material uh, things of this world in that way. I consider my relationships and my uh, ability to influence others in the same way. I view all of that as, for whatever reason, the resources that God gave me um, to use to his glory to advance his kingdom purposes. I'm not sure everybody sees life and their life in that way. In fact, the opposite, unfortunately, tragically, you're exactly right. Again, to use meta-narrative as kind of a tool here, we in the West have adopted what could be called an existentialist meta-narrative that says you're an actor on a stage. Martin Heidegger said this, you have no script, no audience, no director, no past, no future. Courage is to face life as it is. The atheistic existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, most famous book or play was entitled No Exit. His autobiography was entitled Nausea. That's your devotional thought Mm. for the day. And so there's this Western idea that you're just an actor on a stage and there really is no meta narrative. The meta narrative is to deny the meta narrative. It's to believe there is no overarching truth. There's just your truth and my truth. Well, the gospel comes along to say that's categorically false. Jesus is a king. You're invited into the kingdom. You're part of the scope of history. God not only has a geographical call for you, God called me to Dallas from Atlanta in 1998, kind of Paul's Macedonian call, but as you said, he has a chronological call for us. It's by his providence we weren't alive 100 years ago or 100 years from now if the Lord tarries. If you couldn't be a missionary to this day and time, you wouldn't be in this day and time. So in the midst of the bad news that we're looking at, we need to understand that we've been given the opportunity by God to be a missionary to this moment, to this culture, to share the good news, to be part of God's overarching meta narrative of his kingdom coming, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. When we know that, our lives find significance and purpose and meaning that we can find no place else. See, that's so encouraging, and that's so empowering. It tells me who I am. It answers the identity question. It tells me what in the world I'm in the world to do. Um, it, it's just, and it gives me a sense of belonging. I'm a part of the people of God. I'm a child of God. I have a place. I have a purpose. I have a future. It's filled with hope. Um, I'm not, you know, I don't know, like a little cork without meaning, bobbing around in the ocean of whatever. Like, right? I'm I'm real, And life is real, and it has meaning and purpose, and all of that is found in who God is. And so if you want to know more about the meta narrative of the gospel, um, the Bible is the place to to be equipped for that. Jim Dennison has a great piece um, on this. Actually, it's a podcast episode. If you go to denisonforum.org and you listen to the uh, Denison Forum podcast um, on this meta narrative, and how we find ourselves in it, Um, you're just going to be more fully equipped, not only for this conversation, but just for the living of these days. Jim, as always, thank you so very much. It's just a delight. And safe travels um, as you you make a return trip to Israel. We just, um, we'll we'll be praying God's mercies over you as you go. Thank you so very much, my friend. God bless. 
Likewise. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. There's always a reason to always choose joy. What's your story? What's your story? What's your backstory? What's the story that you're telling? What's the story you're a part of? How are you advancing the gospel, the good news, the story of the good news of Jesus Christ? How are you advancing that story today? Um, What's the story to which you are bearing witness? What's the meta narrative you understand yourself to be a part of? And then how are you sharing that story with others. Like, uh, this is this is sort of the question of the Christian life. Um, yes, the world is a broken mess. Yes, you and I, we're a broken mess. But God's making it all new. God created it good. Um, yes, it's broken and fallen. But by his grace, he sent Jesus. And through him, all things are being made new. I know it doesn't always feel that way, but that is the truth. You know, our feelings are a terrible barometer of the truth. And so we have to remind each other and we have to encourage one another in the midst of um, despair. We have to be even shining the light to one another. I don't know if you're an Apostles' Creed person, but um, I remember uh, a friend saying at one point, I can't, I just, I just not in a position to stand up and say that. And, um, and just recognizing that as she as she stood there silent in the midst of a believing congregation, she was encouraged. And so maybe that's you today. Maybe maybe you're having a hard time believing all this. Um, that's okay. Keep listening. We're going to believe alongside you um, in the midst of the darkness and doubt. We're going to continue to shine light. We're going to continue uplift and uphold and tell the story of the good news of Jesus. We got another hour of mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.